chapter ended with sort of the heroic standing up of uh, Shifra and Pua, these Hebrew midwives, to the, the king of Egypt who had declared that all the babies, the, the Hebrew baby boys, should be killed. Uh, but just as soon as they've stood up to him, uh, Pharaoh decrees that uh, instead of just having the midwives kill the babies, now all the Egyptians, if they, if they see a, a Hebrew baby boy, that baby should be thrown into the Nile River. So that's, that's the context, which would be really important for what we're reading. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Quick note, so you got to remember there were all these brothers, these sons of Jacob, who became like family lines when they came to, to Egypt. They're like, you call them the tribes of Israel later on. They're all going to get like land and stuff like that. Um, so there are these, these, these distinct family lines. So the important thing here is we're going to find out that Moses is a Levite. Anyway, so a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, right? Because otherwise he'd have to be killed. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So she followed the order. I mean, kind of, right? I mean, she put the baby in the river. Um, she's, a, she's a smart one. Anyway, uh, and then his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then, of all people <laughs> in Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. And she opened it, and she saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him, and she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies, which she of all people should know means I'm supposed to kill this baby. But instead, the boy's uh, sister comes and asks Pharaoh's daughter, hey, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter, in direct disobedience to her father's order, says, yes, go. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. And so the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. This is the word of the Lord. There is a very old story contained in the writings of the Akkadian Empire. This is like present-day Iraq. 
And the story, it's hard to date it exactly. It might even be older than the story of Exodus. And in this story, the people of the Akkadian Empire are living through a brutal regime. Their king seems to be a tyrant. Uh, They're worked to the bone, and the people cry out for help. And just when it couldn't get any worse, it appears that the, the king orders that if any of his rivals have a baby boy, that child must be put to death. Well, it turns out that a powerful priestess in the temple of a local god found out that she was pregnant and gave birth to a son. Knowing that her son would be killed if found, we read that she, quote, placed him in a reed basket, sealed it with pitch, and placed it in the river. A little while later, the basket was spotted by an irrigation worker who retrieved the basket, discovered the boy, and decided that he would raise the child himself. Over the next 40 years, the child proved himself to be unusually brave, strong, and wise. And once he was fully grown, the boy revealed that he was the promised child of the great priestess. And then immediately he led a coup of the regime, and he declared himself King Sargon of the Akkadian Empire. And under his rule, the empire grew and flourished. It turns out this is kind of a common storyline in the ancient world. It seems that there were more than a few important babies put in baskets in rivers back then. You find similar stories from the Hittites, the Assyrians, and even the Egyptians. And so in a way, we kind of know what we should be able to expect from Exodus. The people of Israel are crushed by an oppressive tyrant. The tyrant orders the deaths of babies, but an exceptional baby is saved by a clever parent. He grows up, and when the time is right, he bursts onto the scene, proves that he is worthy, and without delay, saves his people. That's the story we expect. But in Exodus, that is not the story that we get. Yes, we get a baby in the river, and yes, he is raised by strangers, and yes, he eventually leads his people, but pretty much every other detail is wrong. For starters, the baby is supposed to be from a great family, a family sort of destined for this kind of rescuing, but Moses is a Levite. Now, maybe you remember the Levites in kind of a positive way, right, for the role that they took on later on in Israel's history, right? They were the ones who took care of the temple. And you might remember, they don't have their own chunk of land, right? So all the other tribes have their own land, but not the Levites. But do you remember why they didn't get their own land? It's Genesis 35. Levi, he's the original Levite, finds out that uh, his sister has just been attacked in a nearby town. And immediately, the attacker's father reaches out to make things right with the girl's family. 
But when Levi finds out what happened to his sister, he grabs another one of his brothers, they trick the town, and together he and his brother kill every man in the village. Levi's father, Jacob, is horrified by this. His son's actions were way out of proportion. And so many years later, at the end of Genesis, when Levi's father is about to die, he's doing what old men did in the Bible. He's passing on a blessing to his sons. But when he comes to Levi, he doesn't give him a blessing. He gives him a curse. He curses Levi for his anger. The Bible says he curses Levi for his cruel fury. So that was Genesis 49. So we are three or four hundred years later, but it's only been two chapters of the Bible. Okay. And all we know about that tribe, the Levites, is that curse. All we know is that of all the tribes, they're kind of the worst. Like, they're the hotheads, they're the disappointments, they're the losers who mess everything up by overreacting. They're too dangerous to get their own land. All right, so that's, that's Moses' family legacy, okay? Basically, this is the last family that you'd want your, your hero coming from. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt, okay? Because, um, after all, Moses gets raised by a different family, right? Uh, he gets raised in the home of Pharaoh. This could be very good. Uh, He'd get a really good education. He'd get good training. Uh, you can imagine, you know, he'd probably like build trust with Pharaoh. Um, of all of his peers, all the other Hebrews, he would be like so well positioned to maybe like negotiate some kind of peace or some kind of freedom, some way to release his people, right? This is perfect, right? So this is a very hopeful moment in the text. You can see uh, the potential good that can come from this. And so finally, right, he's fully grown. For the first time, verse 11, we meet the adult Moses. Right, this is his big reveal. This is the part in the story when all those years of preparation and connections are going to come together, and Moses is going to prove, I am not just another Levite. I am worthy to lead my people. And then what does he do? He does just about the most Levite thing he could do. He sees a Hebrew getting beat up by an Egyptian. But rather than just stop the fight, he looks here and there, premeditation, right? Then he kills the Egyptian and secretly buries him. In other words, he does exactly what you would expect from a disappointing Levite. And one of his fellow Hebrews sees him and, and calls him on it. And the Hebrew, right, who Moses is supposed to be rescuing, is like, dude, who are you? I saw what you did. You're, uh, you're no leader of me. Right? And so the people he's supposed to, to save have now rejected him. It took him like four verses, okay, before the people that he was supposed to save have rejected him. 
Oh, and then things get especially bad because Pharaoh finds out. And he orders Moses' death. This is great. Remember, the whole benefit of him being raised by the Egyptians is that's like maybe he's going to give him like these connections. He's going to be able to work some angles, help his people out. Instead, the king issues a death sentence for him. And now Moses has to run away to the desert just to save his own life. And that's where he's stuck for 40 years. Not saving his people, uh, mostly just saving himself. Let's just say this is not how the story is supposed to go. One of the things that the commentators have noticed about chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus is that it is a really grim picture. And so there's a storyline. There's a very hopeful storyline of this rescued child who's going to grow up and then rescue his people. And chapters 1 and 2 kind of remind us of that story, but mostly just remind us of that story exactly enough to make us extra disappointed with the actual details of this story. It's like, seriously, God? This is the guy? Like, this is your plan? And in the coming chapters, it really doesn't get much better, right? Moses complains that he couldn't possibly save God's people. I mean, he doesn't have the credibility. He doesn't have the skills. God should send somebody else. It looks like the whole thing is going to fall on its face. And yet. And yet, dear friends of Jesus Christ, this is the miracle of Exodus. As difficult as the plan is, As disappointing as Moses often proves to be, as much as this is completely against the script, it worked. It took an extra 40 years, and and Moses was never really, you know, King Sargon material. But God got the job done. God got his people out of Egypt. And and I think this story is meant to give us a lot of hope. Consider this. The the events of chapters 1 and 2 in Exodus take place over more than a lifetime. So everybody who is alive in the beginning of Exodus chapter 1 is dead by the end of Exodus chapter 2. God basically doesn't show up until the very end of chapter 2, which means that after three or four hundred years of silence between Genesis and Exodus, not hearing anything about what God is doing in Egypt, after three hundred years of slavery and oppression, and wondering, like, is God ever going to show up? After 300 years, the Bible finally starts up again, right? Exodus chapter 1. Only to make us watch a whole nother lifetime go past 
where it looks like nothing good is happening. Wait a minute, why is this encouraging? This is why it's encouraging, okay? I think it's encouraging because I think it's real. I think this is the experience of a lot of us, all right? We look around at the world, or we're taking an assessment of our lives, and for some of us, it feels like it has been a lifetime since God has done anything good, right? It feels like a lifetime of silence, dead ends, disappointment. What about the promises, right? Why is there such suffering? Why is there such poverty? Why is there such unbelief? Why these horrible events in Charleston? These are the questions that God's people ask, right? Why? And, and, and where are you? And, and how long? They must have been the questions of the Israelites, right? I mean, they, they heard the stories about God talking to their forefathers and doing these crazy things, and it's like, God, where are you? But this is what we discover in the book of Exodus. Even in the bad stuff, when it seemed like hope was lost, God was working. So think about it. If, if Pharaoh doesn't issue that terrible order to kill the boys, Moses is never put in the river. If he's never put in the river, he's never found by the princess. If he's never found by the princess, he's never adopted. If he's never adopted, he never gets the training in court that he will use later in life. What about this? If Moses hadn't been such a stereotypically disappointing, hot-headed Levite, he doesn't kill the Egyptian. He doesn't get caught. If he doesn't get caught, he doesn't go into exile in the desert. And if he doesn't go into exile in the desert, he doesn't learn the humility that we learn later God taught him in the desert. He doesn't get to learn what it's like for his people to be displaced in a foreign land. And he doesn't get to meet God at the burning bush. I mean, it's, not, it's not the way the story is supposed to go. But God was still working. I mean, Israel probably expected and certainly hoped for someone more like King Argon than Moses, right? Some sort of flashy hero. But in a way, I don't think they should have been so surprised. So just in the book of Genesis, so that's the one book before this in the Bible, God is constantly using the wrong people, okay? So um, in a culture that was all about the oldest son, God works with younger sons. And in a culture where really only men seem to ever matter, sometimes God wouldn't use men at all. He'd use women. And not even like...
Yeah. 